and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and I suffer from hypoprosexia. That sounds painful. It's an abnormally short attention span. Oh, okay. Hence how I just lost my word prior to the show, and it was right in front of my face on my laptop. Yeah, that makes sense. So it was fitting. It was. Yeah. So, yay, it is. What is it, Courtney? What is today? Or what is this? uh, Yes, today. Today. Yeah. Yeah. It is our one-year anniversary of starting the podcast. What the F? (laughs) I know. Can you believe we started this one year ago in my dining room? Yes, it was Ted Bundy and... I had the fun idea that I thought every episode I'm going to drink a bottle of wine or a glass of wine and give prop outs to some local winery and vineyard. And we did that Ted Bundy episode and we had to do it twice. And I was a little bit not sober when we finally did it the second time. That's true. And I hear it when I listen to it. (laughs) And I had the weird idea that my one-year-old German Shepherd at the time would be quiet while we were recording. Yes, and we used to do it in a really big room. That um, was echoey. It was, oh my gosh, that first, I mean, our episodes, I think for, well, I know I'm more critical about it than you are, but our episodes for quite a while were a whole lot of like just figuring out how to use the equipment. It's true. And we still struggle a little bit, but we definitely sound so much better than those first episodes, especially the first episode. I know. And this marks episode 51. Right. For us. Yes. It would be 52, but I was sick that one week. So it's allowed to happen. We all get sick sometimes. So don't be too hard on yourself. I forgive you. I won't. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, okay. Well, there's that. And then uh, now it is your question. It is my question. So as we're recording this, It's a couple days before Christmas. Um, Y'all will be listening to this a couple days after Christmas. Um, So my question today is, what is your favorite, like, holiday song or Christmas carol? Um, I like, uh, so, the little drummer boy always makes me cry. Like, if I really Mm -hmm. listen to the words and I get all into my emotive BPD stage or whatever, I will cry for that one so I don't know if that's my favorite but it's probably the most emotional one that I listen to Hmm, Um, but it's just he he tries so hard he does all he has is what he has but it's it's enough it is all enough I mean that's really the message for every day of the year yeah what's yours um I like the classic have yourself a merry little Christmas okay yeah that's a good Mm -hmm. one yeah sentimental not too sentimental. Mm-hmm. Not like the drummer boy. No. It's really fun to sing because, mm-hmm. like, the range is really big, so. Yeah. Um, what is I always like about it. In my choir, there's that one song, and it's the, you know, Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells. Carol of the bells. That mm-hmm. one. I love listening to a good choir mm-hmm. sing that. No, obviously, my voice just did it so much mm-hmm. justice, but. Yeah. Um, I've sang that I in that choirs one. before. It was yeah, super I was, fun. I was always like an alto two, I think, but those soprano ones like were that was me intensely high. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy stuff. So yeah, those are I like all the Christmas songs are fun. I've never gone caroling, you know, mm-hmm. like in the right like door to door or whatever. Yeah. I mean, is that a thing? I've never had anyone carol me. I don't me. 
know if that's a thing anymore, at least in the U.S. We more like go to a place and then sing Christmas carols there, like to a retirement home or a mall or something. I'd go see Christmas carols if they were sung well. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that question, Courtney. And um, you picked today's new murderer, serial murderer. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, why you chose this person? So I I happened upon this case kind of unintentionally, um, just generally browsing books because I love to read. Um, And I'm a fan of the, like, investigative journalist and author Greg Olson's book, If I Tell, which I highly recommend, by the way. Um, And I came across this other title of his called Starvation Heights. And I don't know if we've ever really talked about it on the show, but one of my areas of interest in, like, psychology and counseling is working with eating disorders. Um, And so this seemed kind of right up my alley. And as I read the description and the summary, I realized that it could also fit into my serial killer fascination. So I bought the book, and here we are, about to tell the story of the starvation doctor, a.k.a. Linda Burfield Hazard. All right. Um, So this case also is a little different than normal. I was a little bit too busy or or behind. (laughs) <laughs> to write this one up. So Courtney wrote this one up, but I'm going to I'm going to narrate it as per usual. Um, right. but it might just seem a little different. Right, yeah, cuz it's written sort of styles. Yeah, in my voice instead of your voice. Yeah. So, yeah. anyhow, just wanted to give her the props because she did most of the legwork on this one. So, um Linda Laura Burfield was born on December 18th, 1867 in Carver County, Minnesota. So this is kind of an older case. Yes. We don't have, we haven't done too many of these older ones. No, it's over 100 years old. Yeah. Her mother, Susan Neal, was pregnant with Linda when her husband died during the Civil War. And a year later, Susan married Montgomery Burfield, who adopted Linda. And they went on to have seven more children. They lived on a small farm near Star Lake, and Montgomery worked at a nearby sawmill. Linda had always been interested in nature and being outdoors. Um, And as a 10-year-old, she was described as a girl with, quote, more interest in tree climbing than in dolls. And from an early age, Linda was taught by her parents the importance of health and nutrition, and the family was mostly vegetarian, which I imagine was kind of rare back then. Montgomery cared very much about the health of his children and would have them um, seen annually by a doctor, even if they had no complaints. Again, that was probably kind of rare back then. This doctor, however, each year claimed that the children had parasites and required a certain medication. This medication reportedly had side effects that included severe bouts of vomiting and diarrhea, and Linda reported feeling ill for many years as a result. She had difficulty digesting food, and all of the vomiting severely damaged her teeth. This was when her distrust in, you know, quote, traditional medicine began, and she started to gain interest in osteopathy. Courtney, do you think Linda's father was a hypochondriac, and if so, what is that technically? So a person with hypochondria has an intense fear or preoccupation with illness, often mistakes kind of normal body sensations for signs of illness, and is not easily reassured even when given a clean bill of health from a doctor. I don't think that Montgomery was a hypochondriac. Essentially, he just had his kids get a yearly wellness exam before it was a common practice. And then he believed what the doctor told him, you know, in a time when the average person didn't have much access to information that would allow them to kind of question the authority that a doctor has. Yeah, I imagine back then, um, 
as with today, you know, people believe everything that they're told by, you know, a a physician sometimes. Right. We're going to them for our health Mm -hmm. and we trust that they're going to be honest about it. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people now know it's kind of best practice, especially with certain conditions to get a second opinion, but Mm -hmm. still. Um, At the age of 18, Linda somewhat reluctantly married Erwin Perry. She shared that she, quote, didn't have the heart for pledging her undying love and wanted more for her life than to be just a housewife. They had two children, a son, Rollin, and in 1889, uh, oh, sorry, Rollin was born in 1889 and Nina Floyd was born in 1891. Eight years later, Linda claimed that Erwin suddenly abandoned her and the children and she had no idea where he had gone or how to reach him. Rumor suggested that, excuse me, rumor suggested that either she had actually left him or that something darker had, darker had befallen Erwin. So I'm assuming like maybe he was poisoned or killed or something. Those was are some of the rumors. To. Right. But yeah. yeah, again, there's no evidence. The two children, Rollin and Floyd, were sent to live with Linda's mother at Star Lake. Linda was granted a divorce in 1891 and began, began studying to be an osteopathic doctor with a certain interest in the, quote, fasting cure. Courtney, what can you tell us about the kind of mother who would choose to send her children away after a sudden loss like this? So I think there are kind of two main reasons why a mother might choose to have her children be raised by family members. The first is out of concern for their well-being. You know, if a mom recognizes that she's not able to provide them with a stable life due to poverty or physical or mental illness or other life circumstances. So like if, you know, um, Erwin having left her, left her destitute, for example, and she wasn't able to provide care, um, that would be kind of one thing. And then the second kind of idea is if a mother doesn't really want children to begin with or, you know, felt like having children around was preventing something that they wanted more. Um, I believe that Linda was the second type. You know, she saw and she knew that she wanted a career in medicine and had been kind of a reluctant bride and mother to begin with. So when Erwin left, it was the kind of perfect opportunity to start the life she really wanted. Yeah, I mean, she straight up said she didn't want to be a housewife, so. Around the turn of the century, um, natural cures and osteopathic medicine were all the rage. This was when Thomas Kellogg claimed a bland diet could cure all things and touted cornflakes as a way to curb, quote, impure urges. (laughs) What does he mean, like, by that, do you know? Yeah, he thought that, um, like, things like masturbation and sexual arousal could be cured by... With cornflakes? With cornflakes and a bland diet. Dang. Yep. Okay, if only. No. He was a prude. <laughs> <laughs> Linda latched on to another trendy treatment at the time, which was fasting, you know, limiting or avoiding eating foods for different lengths of time in order to supposedly cure diseases. She first opened a medical practice in Minneapolis focusing on this fasting treatment, which she claimed could cure ailments that traditional medicine could not, including diabetes, syphilis, and paralysis. Now, keep in mind, Linda did not go to college or medical school but started calling herself a doctor. And you can't just call yourself a doctor in today's world. That that would get you um, probably arrested. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Courtney, what kind of impact does, quote, fasting have on health and mental health? So fasting, a.k.a. starvation, really, um, has almost an immediate impact on the body and the mind. You know, even just one day of not eating um, and the body starts to break down fats and muscles into glucose to provide energy. And this, of course, continues in greater quantities the longer that the starvation lasts. So you're essentially eating yourself um, to keep yourself going. 
Um, and then over time, you know, it can lead to things like dry and flaky skin, changes in hair color, poor circulation, low blood pressure, cellular damage to organs, and um, especially dangerous is damage to the muscles in the heart. Um, and eventually death, of course, if you, you know, don't eat for long enough. And then in terms of the brain and mental health, you know, hunger or starvation is often associated with irritability, increased depression and anxiety, lack of energy, and cognitive delays. You know, I think most of us are pretty familiar with how hard it can be to focus or make decisions and how easily we get annoyed when we're hungry. Mm-hmm. Or have the... Dang it, I've already lost... Oh, the uh, hypoprosexia. That's right. That would happen more often if you were starving. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not fasting, you guys. I'm just... <laughs> In October 1902, a woman named Gertrude Young reached out to Linda for help after struggling to recover from a stroke. She was prescribed a 40-day fast, taking in only small amounts of liquid vegetable broth each day. Gertrude followed the fast exactly, even when advised by other doctors that she needed nourishment, and on day 39, she died of her fast. Linda reported her death to be a result of, quote, paralysis, but she was challenged by the county coroner who suggested that starvation was the true cause. There was an investigation, but ultimately, since Linda was not a licensed physician and there were no laws against the fasting method, she was found to have no liability in Gertrude's death. Linda Burfield uh, found herself encased in scandal again in November of 1903, but not because of her medical practices. She had recently gotten married to Samuel Hazard, which made public, or which was made public when she met his other wife, Vera, who had married the same man under the name Samuel Hargrave. There was a very public trial when Samuel was charged with bigamy, and it was in all the local newspapers as a source of gossip and entertainment. It was revealed during this time that Linda was completely aware that Sam was already married and had sent threatening letters to Vera and was very public in her intention to continue the relationship. Sam was found guilty of bigamy and sentenced to two years in prison. By the time he was released, he and Vera had divorced, and he was back with Linda, who now referred to herself as Dr. Dr. Linda B. Hazard. They moved to Seattle, where she opened up a new practice. It should be noted that the, although she lacked formal education, Linda was now approved for a medical license in Washington, under a law that grandfathered in osteopathic providers. So in today's medical licensing, at least in Oregon, and Washington is usually even tougher on licensing requirements than Oregon, um, a doctor of osteopathy goes through the same amount of training as a medical doctor. They have internships, residencies. They might do a fellowship. They also have special boards uh, specifically for the osteopathic practice, just like the medical boards have their own practice as well. Um, so times have definitely changed between then and now as far as having an osteopathic medical license. I just want to throw that out there because a doctor of osteopathy is a legit doctor. Right. Yeah. These <laughs> days, that's yes. absolutely true. <laughs> Um, by this time, it was 1908, and Linda had just published a book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease. Linda also partook in her own treatments, regularly fasting for days or weeks and taking daily enemas. She attributed her trim figure and self-reported good health to the fasting cure. Now, Courtney, this sounds a lot like an eating disorder. What do you think? I believe that if Linda was assessed today, she would likely be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Um, you know, the essential criteria for anorexia include the restriction of caloric or energy intake leading to low body weight, intense fear of gaining weight or being fat, and distorted beliefs about 
body weight and shape, such as relating weight with self-worth or denial of the seriousness of having a low body weight. Now, we don't know for sure if Linda had a fear of gaining weight, um, but she did keep her body weight low, and I would argue that the belief that fasting could cure diseases is certainly distorted. You know, and additionally, Linda exhibited many associated features and behaviors common in people with anorexia, including, you know, the avoidance of certain food groups. She remained a vegetarian for most of her life. Um, difficulties with digestion and constipation. She relied on daily enemas. Um, irritability and temper outbursts. Rigid thinking and routine. And taking, you know, the des- having the desire for and taking pride in having a very strong sense of self-control. So I don't know, this is uh, just throwing this at you now. It's not something we've talked about. But um, as far as enemas go, back then, you know, I read the book and they were done in a bathtub. What do you, I mean, do you have any idea how the enema was administered? Is it just, I'm I'm kind of blanking on it. I mean, I know how they are today, Mm -hmm. sort of. I imagine it's a similar process. There is some sort of tubing that is placed in the anus and Mm -hmm. then like water water is pushed through it and Mm -hmm. like the the point of it is to like go in through the intestine and flush everything out correct and she would do this almost daily daily and that has got to be like not good for your intestines I got to assume it's definitely not um it's sort of similar the the equivalent in the eating disorder world today would be the overuse of laxatives Mm -hmm. um to have that cleaned out feeling yeah, but this would be, like, physical pressure on your, yeah. Yes. So, anyhow, doesn't sound um, good to me, but whatever. Uh, in 1911, Linda and her husband, who also acted as her business partner, partner, started building their wellness, quote, sanitarium, or sanatorium, and they named it Wilderness Heights, and in the tiny town of Olala, Washington. Are you familiar with that town, being a Washingtonian? I had never heard of it. It's over on um, the pl- the peninsula, mm-hmm. um, kind of right across the like Puget Sound yeah. from Seattle. Little island or like just little piece of land out there? Um, it's on like the peninsula peninsula. So you go sort of past the islands okay. to the other side and it's like right there. Okay. The goal was to have the main building as well as individual cabins where patients could live on site while participating in their fasting treatments. The idea of this was intriguing to two wealthy British heiresses. Claire and Dora Williamson. Um, This is actually probably a good time since the book that we were using for this research was based on these two sisters. What was the, the, did you already go over the author and the name of the book? Um, I mentioned it in the beginning, um, but just to review. So Starvation Heights is Uh the name of the book um, by Greg Olson. And you did. I remember that now. Sorry, I was my attention span again. <laughs> I just want to make sure we give out props to these authors because we use them for most of our research. So. Yes. Okay. So anyway, the the book was based on pretty much these two women um, and their um, experience with this. So uh, the idea of this was intriguing to them, Claire and Dora Williamson. Claire, who had experienced an array of health problems since childhood, was fascinated by alternative medicines and convinced her sister Dora to come with her to see Dr. Hazard while on a trip through North America. They were just like traveling, going everywhere. Kind of sounded like a really fun time until this happened. Um, (laughs) Both sisters agreed to go under Linda's care, and she immediately prescribed a prolonged fast, along with daily enemas and physical manipulation. The women spent the months of February and March living in apartments in Seattle doing these things before being moved to the sanatorium in Olala in April of 1911. 
Now, what these women and all of Linda's other patients endured was not medical care and could easily be better described as torture. They were provided only minimal nutrition, mainly in the form of watered-down vegetable broth given in amounts as low as two tablespoons at a time, once or twice per day. Occasionally, they were allowed to have a cup of fruit juice or a small piece of fruit. This was accompanied by daily enemas that lasted for several hours at a time and were followed by freezing or scaldingly hot baths. Then there was the, quote, physical manipulation, which was really being beaten all over the body by Linda's fists. Staff who worked for Linda um, and were terrified of defying her described them, the patients, as skeletal, with the outline of all of their bones visible, visible, their cheeks and stomachs and eyes sunken in, with pale yellow skin that was covered in bruises, thinning hair, and being in and out of consciousness. Courtney, what type of mental shape must these sisters have been in? So in the late stages of starvation, you know, the brain is just not getting enough nutrients and energy to function properly. Claire and Dora were likely struggling with dysregulated sleep, extremely low energy and lethargy, confusion, feelings of depression and hopelessness, poor concentration, and, you know, possibly hallucinations and difficulty with separating kind of like reality from like a dream or dissociative state. Um, They also would have been in tremendous physical pain all the time, Um, not just from the beatings, but because starvation is really painful. Um, They would have been, in short, absolutely miserable. Um, I do remember one part of the book that really resonated, not resonated, but stuck in my brain is when one of the sisters, I think it was Claire, was getting an enema and this white substance was coming out that the nurses uh, couldn't identify what it was. Right. Yeah, it was something, whatever was happening in her body was not yeah. normal or okay. They were speculating it might have been part of her like internal organs coming out in the enema. Right, or like proteins or something mm-hmm. that, yeah. To make things worse, now that Claire and Dora were in a weakened and mentally compromised state, Linda's husband Sam was brought in. Now Sam was not a good guy. I mean, he had already been arrested for fraud and theft and then the whole bigamy thing. Um, He defrauded the military after he went AWOL from West Point. So Sam's expertise came in handy in the form of having Claire, while suffering from acute starvation, sign multiple bank transfers and financial documents, including a new will that left all of her money and possessions, including thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, to him and Linda. He also got Claire to sign a document that basically said that Dora was mentally deficient and that her wish was for Linda and Sam to act as Dora's legal guardians and make all of her decisions. Now, Courtney, what kind of person could take advantage of sick people like this, and what are we thinking diagnosis-wise? So a person would clearly need to be greedy, manipulative, callous, and selfish. They would likely meet many of the criteria for one or more of the cluster B personality disorders, um, which include antisocial, narcissistic, and borderline personality. Um, Now, we don't have any official assessments of Linda. There weren't really any back at that time, and I doubt she would have agreed to take one if there had been. Um, But based on how, you know, other people described her in the book that we're using, I would guess that she may have had narcissistic personality disorder. You know, her image and being taken seriously in the medical world was extremely important to her, and she would get very angry when her knowledge or legitimacy was questioned. 
you know, nurses who worked for her reported that she was very short with them and did not tolerate anybody suggesting that she may be wrong and would fly into these rages um, when that happened. And she's also described as entitled, you know, to respect, to adoration, and to financial gains. I would not be surprised if she believed that she was truly owed or deserved all of this money that she stole from clients. And I can also see how her need for control and kind of the vanity part that goes with narcissism could have played into her ongoing eating disorder as well. Do you want to elaborate on that? I can. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested. So I put uh, her on the spot, guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's actually interesting. I actually, in college, wrote a paper on how eating disorders and borderline personality feed off each other. Okay. Um, so I imagine it's kind of similar with narcissism, right? Because they want to always be seen as beautiful, the best. That image is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, having, you know, she was very proud of her figure and her supposed good health and all of these things Um, and so to maintain you know what she felt was you know the cause of her beauty um, she would have had to continue with the eating disorder yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. by this time Claire and Dora were being kept separate but they both realized that they were in trouble and needed help somehow Claire managed to sneak out a letter to her longtime nanny and friend Margaret Conway who was in Australia visiting relatives by the time it got there and Margaret was able to take a ship to Washington, it was too late for Claire. The official cause of death, based on the autopsy that Linda performed herself, was cirrhosis of the liver. But it was clear that she had died of starvation to all that had seen her in her last days. And Margaret was asked to identify the body of Claire, and she expressed that she couldn't even tell if it was indeed Claire based on what was left of the corpse. When Margaret saw Dora, She was shocked at her appearance and state. She estimated that Dora weighed around 60 pounds, and that's like the average size of an 8-year-old child, and Dora was barely clinging to life. Margaret stayed at the Wilderness Heights for a couple of months, and she slowly started to sneak Dora extra food until Dora was strong enough to be moved and carefully... um, uh, to be moved and carefully tracking the goings-ons of Linda and her staff. Once Dora was taken from the sanatorium, Margaret worked with the hit the sister's uncle. So the they they luckily had an uncle in Portland. So, um, and his name was John Herbert Herbert, and they went to the authorities about Claire's death and the treatment of patients by Dr. Linda Hazard. It took a lot of convincing and publicity, including influence from the British consulate, because the sisters were from Britain after all. But after months of trying, Linda Hazard was finally arrested and charged with the murder of Claire. During the investigation and trial, it was discovered that there was a pattern of Dr. Hazard's patients dying and then her being the one to do the autopsy and always giving a pre-existing medical condition as the cause. She had also worked with the same funeral home for most of the um, the deaths to process the bodies before family members or other physicians would see the bodies. Unfortunately, none of this evidence was allowed to be presented in court, and there was not enough other evidence to charge her with additional crimes. During that trial, Linda repeatedly spoke with the media, proclaiming her innocence and claiming that her alternative medicine was really what was on trial. There was also evidence of witness tampering, with one witness, a former nurse at the sanatorium, testifying that one of the men who worked on the property had threatened her to change her story to be more favorable to Linda. Ultimately, the jury found Linda guilty of manslaughter and on February 17, 1912, sentenced her to 2 to 20 years in prison at Walla Walla State Penitentiary, where I know we've 
seen a lot of our serial killers end up. A lot of our Washington ones end up there, yep. (laughs) She didn't actually report to the prison until December 1913. However, and during the year between the trial and her prison sentence started, more people connected to Linda, who had been doing the fasting cure, died from starvation. There was a woman named Ida Anderson who first was prescribed the fasting cure for her infant who was born ill and quickly died of starvation. Ida later started fasting herself and died March 2013. can't believe they would fast an infant. Yeah. (laughs) The second was Mary Bailey who died while staying at Wilderness Heights and whose body was described as emaciated with several large burns from heated bricks bricks placed in her bed to keep her warm. Mary's wallet and belongings were taken by the doctor. A man named Fred Eberson, who was being treated by a student of Linda's, died after a 49-day fast. Linda stated that she had refused to treat Fred because he didn't have any money. Two years later, in 1915, Linda Hazard was released on parole. She was then issued a pardon by the governor upon the condition that she leave the United States. What is this? What is going on? So I don't have exact answers, you know, but there was a lot of media coverage around the time of her verdict and sentencing that she was being treated differently because she was a woman. Mm. You know, newspaper articles were written about how she likely would have been given hard time or even the death penalty had she been male. You know, and well, this was it was the early 1900s and women weren't even able to vote yet. All of her, you know, jury people were men. Everyone deciding these things were men, and, you know, women were still generally viewed as less than men in most ways. And so I think that, you know, all these men making these decisions just completely underestimated her. She was far more cunning and dangerous than they believed that women could be. So that might have been one of the only things that uh, was, um, how should I say this, advantageous to women back then. (laughs) not being committed fully to the extent of the law because they were only women and there's no way they could be a serial murderer. Right. (laughs) You know, women have all these feelings and they're soft and delicate. So how dare, you know, someone be callous like that. There's no way that they could do that. So they'll just let them get away Mm -hmm. with it. All right. Linda and Sam moved to New Zealand where she continued to practice as a physician and published another book. They returned to Alala, Washington in 1920, using the money they had earned overseas to complete the construction of the grand main building of the sanatorium, which was reopened for patients, but now called a school of health. How was it that she was able to come back? When she was pardoned, she was granted like all of her rights back, essentially. So, yeah. In 1922, Linda was in trouble with the police again when a man named Leonard Ritter died while getting the treatment. But she was only charged and found guilty of practicing medicine without a license and fined $100. She would face this charge several more times in her life. In May 1935, there was a fire at Wilderness Heights that completely destroyed the main building and most of the furniture inside. There was some rumor that Sam may have set the fire intentionally for the insurance money, but this was never substantiated. In 1938, Linda became ill and prescribed her now-famous fasting cure for herself— and in June of 1938, at the age of 71, Linda Burfield Hazard died of starvation. She was the final victim of her own cure. Mm-hmm. Kind of like poetic justice. A little bit. While the true number of victims who died at the hands of Lizard, Linda Hazard and had their wealth and belongings stripped from them by her husband, Sam, is unknown, there are 17 deaths that are accepted as being associated with her between 1908 and 1913. The sanatorium became known by the locals in history as Starvation Heights. 
So the way I see it, Corny, was that she had a couple of motivations. Perhaps one was that she really did believe her methods could help, but then maybe greed overtook her, um, you know, because she would target wealthy clients and would oftentimes accumulate some or all of their wealth upon their demise. She most likely also got off on the control she had over these clients. You know, she essentially brainwashed them to starve to death because she told them to. What do you think? I agree with that assessment. You know, Linda seemed to be seeking some form of greatness in her life and used power and control to achieve that. And, you know, in a way, she was given absolute power by her clients who literally trusted her with their lives. And, you know, as the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I totally agree with that saying. I've Mm -hmm. quoted it myself many times when I look at politicians and monarchs and blah 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 right anyone that you give and usually I I think that it's a narcissist that that happens to or they become one I don't know well I mean I think narcissistic traits and definitely antisocial traits are found in a lot of high-ranking yeah members of society you probably have to have that to do what they do I think so you know but it takes all kinds it does so I mean we need them even if sometimes they go too far correct to get stuff done that was just like you know whatever so that is the story of linda hazard yeah someone we had never heard of a woman yep um not your traditional serial killer right but i think fits the profile um so ultimately courtly courtney do you think that her main motivator was greed or do you think that she enjoyed seeing people suffer and die you know that's a hard one because I do think that, to a certain degree, she did believe in the fasting cure. Um, I mean, she did use it on herself. Right. And she's also described as, like, vindictive. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, we didn't mention it, but there's a rumor that, like, she actually shot and killed somebody at, yeah. um, up at Starvation Heights, whose body was found in a ravine years later. Um, so I think there's a lot about Linda that we, we just don't know, Mm -hmm. um, because it was so long ago and, you know, no one ever took her seriously enough to evaluate her. Sure. And then I didn't finish the book, um, because I ran out of time. So does it say what happened to Dora? So Dora fully recovered. Oh, good. Okay. I was hoping Um, so. It took years for her to kind of build her strength back up and kind of get back to kind of healthy functioning. Um, she went on to get married um, to a nice young Australian man, and her and, and her good friend Margaret moved to Australia, and well, she good. lived out the rest of her life. I'm so glad for Dora. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to do the social media really quick. Do it. Uh, hit us up on Instagram, the gram, uh, at Addicted to M Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at Addicted to Murder Podcast. And our email, Addicted to Murder Podcast at gmail.com. Nice job. Um, so I am picking our next serial killer. Yes. And it was another random one where I just picked a book from the book selection of serial killers, of which there are many. And my clue is going to be that... This type of serial killer accounts for 20% of the serial killers out there, but gets very little media play. 
Interesting. Dun, dun, dun. Well, that was one poll, 20%. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's differing polls, but. Sure. Well, they, do take to... up a, they do take up an amount. Correct, yeah. And you'll have to tune in next time mm-hmm. to find out who that is. Yes. And so, Courtney, until next time, what do we do when we're offered perfect health, provided that we fast until we die? Go nuts and maybe eat some nuts. Mm. Go home and eat and then go to therapy. Sounds good to me. All right, everybody. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.